anybody's listening to this podcast, the two greatest issues they'll hear about the rest of their life is climate change and income inequality. And I think more than anything else, business has created those two problems and more than anyone else, businesses can solve those two problems. From We First, welcome to Lead With We, the podcast where top business leaders and founders reveal how they built their companies to be high impact and high growth by putting We First. Lead With We is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Welcome to this week's episode of Lead With We, where I'm talking to Blair Kellison, who's the CEO of Traditional Medicinals, the fastest growing tea company in North America. Blair, great to have you on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Simon. Now, Blair, you... As a CEO, you as a company have been purposeful long before it was fashionable, in inverted commas, or top of mind for business. I mean, the company's been around 45 years. Help us understand why the company was started that way. You know, I understand the flounder was Drake Sadler, and what was his motivation? Sure. So I came into the company in uh, 2008, in his 34th year. A little bit daunting uh, to come into a company in his 34th year and be the first CEO of the company. Uh, besides the founder. So, uh, but, but I really credit Drake for both uh, realizing that the company needed more than he could offer at that time or some additional things that he could offer that he had, but he started the company uh, in 1974, the woman named Rosemary Gladstar. Rosemary is a fourth generation herbalist and she had a thriving herbalist practice, both uh, kind of out of their home that they lived in. And then also she had a kind of a window at a natural food store in Guerneville, Northern California, where you could just go to that Rosemary, it's called Rosemary's Garden. You went to the window and you say, hey, I'm feeling constipated, I got a sore throat, and she'd make up a formula for them. And he had the idea of like, hey, let's take the top 10, 15 things people come to you with, let's make the formulas all up in tea bags, and let's sell it in the store. The philosophy for the business was twofold. One, uh, they really wanted to revitalize herbalism and kind of been lost in, in America and really reintroduce people to herbalism. And the second thing they wanted to do is they wanted to start a business. They wanted to have a business that didn't exploit people, didn't exploit uh, the environment, and really embrace these growing communities. Because these herbs actually come from all over the world, many different countries, typically in impoverished countries. And many of them are collected in the wild. That means mostly women go out and uh, with a burlap bag and they go in the forest and they were collecting these things. So the, the magic of our company is, is we took this thing that people were pretty curious about herbalism where all the herbs come from and the history behind it. And they're also pretty skeptical about it. Like, uh, how do you do this stuff? And how could I make an herbal formula myself? And they put it into this form that everybody understands, a tea bag. Let me ask you this, Blair. You know, was it a fast-growing company out of the gate? I mean, it's such a crowded category. Tea and coffee, there's so many big players and so on. Did it just shoot out of the gate? Or was this something that built up over time? Yeah, you you got to, we're an herbal medicine company that's disguised as a tea company. Now, the company was not an overnight success. It's pretty, it, people didn't really understand herbalism. They didn't understand the tea bag part was easy to understand, but just why would I take this? And, why, you know, they, they spent genera- you know, decades building, building that uh, knowledge base. One of the big tenets of the company was herbal education. And they've really, <clears throat> for 45 years, we've been educating consumers about herbalism and how to incorporate it into your life. And let me ask you about that. You know, was that a necessary strategy? Because, you know, it sounds like the company almost had to take 
what it wanted to do to market in a form that people could understand tea, but then slowly upgrade people's understanding of what you're doing. Was that a conscious thing or was that something you look back at now and go, oh, that's really how it shook out? You know, that's a better question probably asked Drake and Rosemary. <clears throat> if it wasn't, it was a brilliant strategy. When I came in, we were ready to make that bet that we could sit next to Lipton and give it a shot. So what we really did is we made traditional medicinals available in the tea set right next to Lipton and Bigelow. And so we made it accessible. We never changed one formula and we never changed one supplier. And let me push on one little area there. You know, when you're really offering these properties of herbs and so on, you win or lose the day on the quality of the products that you manufacture. So tell us, how do you control, you know, product quality. There are so many certification organizations out there. There are so many purposeful brands making similar claims. How do you make sure you stand above the rest? And then how do you make sure that, you know, people can believe in those claims? So we, we stick to some really strict standards and we, and we stick to them. So just an example that let's say there's, there's this much chamomile out there in the world. And there's a lot of chamomile grows all over the world, right? There's this much that's medicinal quality. And then of the medicinal quality, there's this much that's organic. And of the medicinal quality that's organic, there's this little sliver that's fair trade. That's what we're buying. Socially responsible, environmentally responsible, medicinal grade herbs. It's a sliver. Even an herb like chamomile, which is one of the most uh, prolific herbs in the world, probably 3% of the world's chamomile grown would qualify for traditional medicinals. And then we have to be willing to go out of stock when we don't have it. And let me ask you, I mean, that's a pretty bold decision. I mean, and it's not necessarily one that everyone could make where we say, hey, we're going to put quality above and beyond, you know, absolutely first priority, so much so that we're not going to, you know, we're going to be out of stock if we can't find the right ingredients. Has that proven to be, you know, a sound strategy over time? <laughs> There's been times when I look pretty crazy. You know, we've, we've had out of stocks sometimes for six months. Um, but what we've done that, that as we've grown, we've been able to second and third source things. And we've got teams of people now that are around the world working with growers. So now that we're at scale, those out of stocks happen a lot less. We run into the same issues all the time with, with not, the quality not being there. But now we have second and third suppliers. You know, talking about your supply chain, you've got the suppliers that you look after, but you also do a lot in and around the communities in which, you know, those suppliers live. And, you know, by your own admission, you're almost a best kept secret out there in some way. So people probably don't know a lot about those good works that you're doing in India with the bicycle programs and so on. Why do you do that community impact work, that economic development work that, you know, a lot of people don't see? We believe we're going to get the highest quality herbs by investing in the communities that grow our herbs. It could be just as simple as water security, food security. could be there's no schools. It could be they need dental and medical help. And we're trying to assess the needs of this community and go in and be a good partner to try to improve their community again. So that these people, so we're paying a, we're buying an organic fair trade wage herb. So we're paying a fair, fair price for it. We're buying medicinal quality. And then, so, so we're giving them the best money possible for that. And then they want, we want to have them help the best community possible so that they don't leave that community. Let me ask you, you know, this strategy that you've deployed over 45 years on the strength of the founders and the integrity of the company is great. But 
you know, a lot of younger companies out there that want to be purposeful might say, we don't have all that time to wait. You know, we don't have 45 years to get there. It's a very competitive marketplace and so on. Do you find that having that commitment to integrity and quality and so on can rapidly scale a business today in a shorter timeline? Is that possible? Absolutely. We call our business model our circle of good intent, which means that the decisions we make and the actions that we take are part of the way we do business. And so as we grow, those things grow. The difference would be if we didn't do any of that work and then we took 10% of our profits and we gave it to the Breast Cancer Fund or we gave it to the Arbor Foundation, um, that's a totally different business. We have, I, I, we have one of our competitors that does a promotion on a regular basis where if, they, if you buy a box of tea, they'll plant two trees. Well, that company doesn't have any organic ingredients. What that company should be doing is not having them, their, their consumers build, plant trees, but they should be going out in the world and part of their supply chain should be sourcing organic ingredients so there's less pesticides out there. That's what they can do. Consumers are looking for you to do what you can do as a company. I, as a consumer, I can invest in the breast cancer fund. I can invest in the Arbor Foundation and build plant trees. What I can't do is go out in the world and make an ethical supply chain for your company. You need to be doing that. We're something called a benefit corporation, a B corporation. That means we're incorporated to, um, for our stakeholders, which is everyone from our employees to our growers to our retailers to our employees. And that's our model. And that is in our articles of incorporation. And actually the B Corp is such a strong uh, statement that when you change from a C corporation to a B corporation, you have to offer to buy any of your shareholders out their shares because you've changed the whole game on them because they can no longer sue you for not acting in their best interest. We can take all our money one year and give it all to growers in India and a shareholder can't sue us. I think that's a really powerful point. You know, brands don't need advertising, they need actions. And that's what consumers want to see. And We First is a B Corp as well. And I recommend to anyone listening that they check out being a B Corp because it really does, as Blair says, it institutionalizes it within the company. It's not just lip service. It forces you to be accountable to all stakeholders. And, you know, what you're really saying before, Blair, is that, you know, the education piece is critical. I mean, consumers expect you to do well what only you can do, which is to build a responsible supply chain to take quality products to market but then you educated them as to what your products could do and we're seeing more and more brands do that we're seeing for example you know airbnb leading a conversation around universal belonging or we're seeing you know the unilevers of the world talk about sustainable living i know that you for a long time you know traditional medicinals has talked about the power of plants tell us about you know that education platform and how that allowed you to drive growth and expand your product portfolio? Right. First of all, I'll say what consumers are doing now that's different is they're not just buying what you make, they're buying why you make it. And that's a wonderful thing. You can hear all kinds of negative things about the millennial generation, but the greatest thing that the millennial generation has done is created an interest in where does this stuff come from? Why do you make it? I see what you do and I see it has these features and benefits, but why? Why are you doing? Why does your company exist? And then on the power of plants, so our purpose really is we connect people to the power of plants to change lives, to change the lives of the people who are collecting the plants and change the lives of the people who are drinking the efficacious teas that are made with the plants. And that's our whole purpose. That's, that encapsulates all of what traditional medicinals is about. 
And so we're connecting people with their cup of tea and these plants and this curiosity and where's it all come from? We're connecting them right back to the grower in Bulgaria that's going out with a, sometimes a burlap sack and collecting these herbs in the wild and, and drying them in a certain way and, and preserving them in a medicinal quality. And we're connecting those two things together. And that's really powerful for consumers. So people, they like our teas and they like that they work, but they, they like our environmental story. They like our fair trade story. They like the stories of the collectors. They like the history of the herbs. We, we have uh, almost 2 million people follow us on Facebook and they're interested in all kinds of different things of what we do. We don't ever offer coupons or discounts or buy one tea or get one free, or we never even hardly promote our brand. We're just promoting herbalism and that's attracting people to our brand. You've got a greater social media following than the next 10 tea companies combined. That is a dream scenario for any company out there to have that many followers who are just engaged in how you're going about your business. And the great thing about being a purposeful company is that when you've got a really responsible supply chain, everything you do is a story worth telling. How you source that product, how you invest in those, you know, local communities in country where you get your products, as well as, you know, what you do inside your culture of your company and so on. So suddenly your purpose allows you to speak to all aspects of your company as part of your marketing. How does this show up internally? Like how do you maintain a culture, not just or establish it, not just outright, but maintain it over 45 years, a culture where employees really, truly embrace this? I mean, what does that look like? The challenge that I've had during my time as we've grown from 50 or 60 employees to 250 employees is scaling that culture. So we, we have a why, which is our purpose, what we've been talking about, and our how is our culture. How, well, so how do you go about manifesting that? How do you go about hiring people? How do you go about keeping it growing? We, we get people that want to be mission-driven, that want to come work for us. But to be honest, Simon, most companies are not mission-driven. Most companies are not purposeful. So as much as we appreciate that they want that and they're, and they're interviewing with us because they're, they have an interest in that, they don't really know what that means. We have to really teach them what it means to be a purposeful, to work at a purposeful company. And these values are really important. It does not matter how smart you are. I have had to terminate several really intelligent people that were shocked that I could possibly think about terminating them because they were doing such great work at such a high intellect level. But our threat to our culture is too, that they were too great of a threat to our culture. I think of it like this. So a typical CEO would come into a company and let's say, let's imagine that the company is a fish tank and all the employees are, are, are fish and we're all swimming in the water and the water is kind of our culture. What a CEO usually comes in and does and says, hey, these, these eight fish or these 10 fish aren't swimming very well. Let's get them out. Let's put some new fish in there. In a purpose-driven environment, the CEO comes in and purifies the water and makes it clean and oxygenated through the values. And if you put a filter in the back corner. Our filter in the back corner of our fish tank is collaboration and respect and humility. And then everybody's filtering that. Well, let me ask you about that because, you know, it's fantastic to have a culture like that and a role of a CEO, as you described. It just makes so much sense. Yet at the same time, you're the fastest growing company in the category, and it's easy for your culture to suffer when you grow aggressively. So how do you bring people on board and how do you maintain that culture over time as you accelerate your growth? 
you, you just got to keep working at it. The, the thing that's different about the company today than, than probably when Drake was running it 20 years ago is it was a group of people that were all in a room together and everybody kind of was all together. And now you have different locations and you have different people in different regions and you have larger amounts of people. You have to be more systematic about it. So we, we have codified our value. We always had values, but about six or seven years ago, we really codified them and put them into a document and explained what they meant. We never had to do that before. The culture is, it starts with leadership. I mean, it starts with, with me. I terminated somebody on my executive team within the last couple of years over culture. And I was sitting at my desk just feeling so distraught about it all. And one of our employees I never talked to, I would get emotional tell the story, just walked up to my desk, just looked at me and said, you're a great CEO and left. Like, because they saw that that person was tearing down the culture of our company. And they saw that I recognized it as a leader and I was willing to let go of one of the highest level people at the company. Like that's what it takes. I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. One of the things that has really set traditional medicinals apart is your financial stability. I know you're very, very intentional about maintaining the financial accountability as much as you are around accountability for your purpose. And that's a key reason why you're the fastest growing company in your category. So explain how you went about that process. It must have been difficult. Sure. First of all, true sustainability is social, environmental, financial, leadership, and ownership. You have to have sustainability in all those aspects. I think the biggest thing that I probably brought to the company that was new thinking, because Drake was a leader in social responsibility with fair trade, a leader in environmental social response, environmental responsibility with solar power on the factory and moving the whole company to organic. The part that I probably brought was the discipline around financial sustainability. It's a three-legged stool. The three have to work together. If you don't have financial sustainability, eventually the social and environmental responsibility is going to go away. We, uh, when you're a specialty food and you're doing something really special and you're selling in specialty food stores, it's kind of easy to raise your prices because that consumer will continue to pay more and more for you. But what we did was we, what I talked about earlier in the podcast, we moved over to the main tea aisle, sit next to Lipton and Bigelow. All of a sudden price really mattered. We couldn't be three times more than them. We could be 40 or 50 or 60% more than them, but we couldn't be a hundred percent more. And so um, we held our prices at the company. We didn't take a price increase for 10 years at our company. So the profit, the profit motive, really increased the efficiency of the company. So it's not like, you know, profit became less important because of purpose, but rather they went hand in hand. Right. But then you think about the finances around the company. We were spending about $100,000 on what we would call social business 12 years ago. And now it's $2 million, 20 times larger. That's, some of that has come from that financial discipline. And then some of it has come from growth, but, but, but it's all together that makes the whole thing. So the whole thing works it's, it's synergistically. You've got to have it all. Do you hear back from the consumer? I mean, you've got this, you know, price efficiency, you've got this purpose integrity, but when the rubber hits the road, when someone's standing in the shopping aisle and they're going to choose from any number of teas or they're going to order online, what do you hear back from the consumer? What wins the day? Why do they choose you? This company does the right thing. <clears throat> That's what we hear. That we, this company is the real deal. It's authentic. These products are high quality. They do things right. They, 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 they can't even sometimes articulate exactly what they do right. They just hear and see enough that like they know that we have integrity, that we're doing, that we're doing the right thing. 
So where do you begin if you're a company that wants to emulate what you're doing? You know, if you were kind of to talk someone through who's just starting a company or is on their way, where do they start? Do they start upstream with their supply chain? Do they start internally with their culture? How do you get it right? So I would say it starts with two pieces. One, the way you treat your employees, the way your culture is, and two, the the way you treat your supply chain. The most of all of the the good that we do and most of all of the bad that's done in the world is through supply chains. It's exploiting people that are down the line that you don't ever talk to or know about. What you need to do is you need to show up in your supply chain. It's such a, a flipping mindset for so many of our listeners, because I think any young company or high growth company is really focused on survival and profits, especially now with COVID-19. And so they're really looking outwards towards the consumer and leading with their product. But what you're saying is, reconsider, stop, take a look at your internal culture and your employees and look upstream to your supply chain and make sure you take care of what you're making. So what do you say to someone who doesn't have a founder like Traditional Medicinals does in Drake? You know, that they're inside a company that wants to be purposeful and they know the market will reward it, but they don't know where to begin. What would be the advice you give them to win over, you know, the board, the leadership or the entire organization so they embrace it? Sure. So every company has a why. It's their purpose. Why were they founded? Why do they exist? And every company has a how, which is how they go about working, how they treat each other. You know, every company, every family has a culture. This is how we do things. And every company obviously has a what. That's the product and the features. If you're focusing on the what, you're going to really always struggle because everybody can copy everybody else. You have to take that back to the why and the how. And if you can get your why into your product and you can get your how into your product, then you're not competing on the features and the price anymore. You're competing on purpose and you're competing on, on culture. And that's, that's what every company can do. Traditional Medicinals is such an exemplar for those who want to drive growth and have scalable impact. You know, what is your larger vision for the role of the private sector? What role do you hope the business will play in, you know, addressing issues like racial injustice, loss of biodiversity, climate crisis? What is your optimistic vision for the future? Sure. I, I think the two greatest issues, anybody's listening to this podcast, the two greatest issues they'll hear about the rest of their life is climate change and income inequality. And I think more than anything else, business has created those two problems. And more than anyone else, businesses can solve those two problems. Blair, thanks so much for today and for all the insights into the leadership of traditional medicinals. Thank you. Our voice is only as loud as people like you give it. And so thank you for this opportunity for us to tell our story with you. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Lead with We, where I spoke to Blair Kellison, the CEO of Traditional Medicinals, who shared with us why impact is all about having the courage to act and why making decisions on what is the best thing for the company for decades, not the next quarter, is critical, and why the highest purpose of business is to address the environment and income inequality. You can subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and please recommend it to your friends and colleagues so they too can become a purposeful and profitable business. If you'd like to learn more about how you can build a purposeful brand, check out wefirstbranding.com where we have lots of free resources and case studies. See you next week on the next episode of Lead With We.